Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning, and you can find it on page 1002 in the Pew Bibles. Are you weary this morning? Are you just tired and burdened down? I'm sure if you're a mother, your answer is yes. Um, has the toil of the to-do list taken a toll on you physically? Maybe work, home, family, or other responsibilities have you fatigued, not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally as well? Do the weights of the world weigh heavy on your soul, depriving you of sleep? Does the pace, do the problems, the many incomplete projects leave you feeling empty, worn out, ready to give in? Do you find yourself longing for rest? When you find yourself weary and in need of rest, where do you turn? Do you turn to sleep? Do you go and find a resting place? Maybe it's your favorite recliner. Maybe it's a park bench uh, that you always go to. Maybe it's your favorite fishing hole. Do you turn to some sort of hobby like batting a ball or, or getting your hands greasy? Maybe, maybe you go for uh, manicures and massages, and that, that's your way of finding rest. Do you long to escape? Maybe get away on vacation, or, 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 or maybe you're to that point where you just really, honestly, you're ready to quit. You're ready to pack up and leave because you're so wearied by your current situation. Where do you turn for rest? Now, all of these and, and many others that could be mentioned have their place. I mean, we need to sleep, right? I mean, every single day, we've got to sleep. But sleep alone is no cure for the deep longings in your soul for rest. Nor are restful places or relationships, nor hobbies or checking out, nor vacations, nor moving to escape the difficulties of life. Now, these all can be gifts from the Lord in, in their own right, but they are poor substitutes for the true desires of your heart, because we need a superior rest. Now, our text this morning was written to a group of Jewish Christians who, like us, were longing for rest from the difficulties of life. But the author, or should I say the preacher in Hebrews, points them back to an early time in history to show them that this longing for rest is common to man, but so often we seek to find it in all the wrong things. And as a result, we miss the true gift of rest that God himself offers us. And so what we're going to see this morning from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, is that the rest of God is for those who fear unbelief, and who strive to enter that rest. And in seeking Him by faith, may we find grace and mercy to help our restless souls as we look to Him. Now for context, I want to begin reading in chapter 3, verse 12. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, 
Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who uh, all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from before the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The rest of God is for those who fear unbelief, and who strive to enter that rest. But before we can strive to enter it, fearing unbelief in our hearts, we need to come to terms with what God intends the rest that He provides to be. And so first we need to seek to understand the rest that God offers, and then we'll look at the two commands given for how we are to seek it, by fearing unbelief and by striving to enter that rest. And so first, the rest of God. And we've already figured out that we want rest. It should be fairly evident. And, and that we all make all sorts of attempts to, to find it, at least temporarily. And we know that those temporary efforts don't last. The emptiness and the fatigue of our souls still remain. No matter how much sleep or how many vacations we take, it's still there. And so we ask God, why don't you give me rest? I mean, you're God. You're good. You're powerful. You're wise. You know my heart. You know what I need. So why don't you give me rest? And we may ask him that over and over and over again. And he doesn't give it in the way that we want. And so we think that God is not listening. But he is. The problem is that his design for rest and our longings for rest don't always line up. Now, it ought to be clear from this text that God is very, very concerned that we enter into His rest. Rest is mentioned explicitly ten times in this passage, another seven times implicitly when you include pronouns and themes like the promise, good news, the message, and the seventh day of creation. 
He says enter it eight different times in the text. So 17 times he's held out that rest for us for the taking. The problem is not that God is unwilling to give it. The problem is, is, is with our willingness to receive it. Some of it is owing to our misunderstanding of what the rest of God is. We want it to be physical. I mean, after all, we're physical beings, and every physical experience that we have is a gift from Him. He gives food, He gives rain, He gives shelter, He gives sleep, He gives us a place and a family we can call home. He gives us community, He alleviates our pain and our suffering, and we can find rest in all of them. But there's a problem if we reduce the rest of God down to what is merely physical. The original audience of the book of Hebrews were wanting relief and protection from persecution. And so the preacher of Hebrews points them back to God's Word, to an earlier time, to Psalm 95, this this Holy Spirit-inspired commentary on Israel's wandering in the wilderness because the people that lived during the times of the kings were just like the people wandering in the wilderness, all of them wanting rest. The wilderness generation wanted freedom from slavery. They wanted the promised land of milk and honey. They wanted victory over all of their enemies without warring or fighting. And they were afraid to go into the promised land because of how tall the Canaanites were. And they they were afraid that God wouldn't be able to whoop them. They wanted physical provision. But when it required daily trust in God for manna from heaven or quail that he provided, or water from a rock as they wandered through the desert, they decided that the salad that they got back in Egypt was better rest than that which God had promised them. And so what they did in both accounts were to choose wandering and to choose slavery over the rest of God. And even after they did finally enter into the promised land, following Joshua, as it says there in verse 8, guess what? They didn't find rest. Sometimes we want rest from God to be cognitive, right? Giving us peace of mind, clarity in the midst of confusion. I mean, after all, the truth will set you free, right? It's John 8. Or knowing is half the battle, right? G.I. Joe or... Or education is the answer. And so if we just have enough information in our heads, then we'll have rest. But again, that's what the original audience of Hebrews thought. Saying, look, we're we're Christians. We know the gospel. right? But our lives are still so restless. And so maybe if we just go back put ourselves under the law. If we know that, then we'll find rest. But the preacher points them back to the wandering Israelites. They knew the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had delivered them from Egypt. He had given them his law. He led them by his servant Moses. They knew the truth. They found no rest. And one of the biggest ways that we want rest is emotional. We want rest from stress, rest from sadness, rest from hurt, 
rest from the difficulties we have in relationships. These Christians in the book of Hebrews were suffering emotionally. Though they had sought to love their enemies, they were treated cruelly. Their property was plundered. Some of their brothers and sisters were thrown into prison. That's deep emotional hurt. The Israelites in the wilderness were afraid of their enemies. They were afraid of starvation. They were afraid that their children and their livestock would die of thirst out there in the wilderness. They had given up the only home they had ever known to follow Moses out into the desert, to wander there, to live among rocks, to live in tents. They had lost friends and loved ones when God punished them for the golden calf or Korah's rebellion. They were in desperate need of emotional rest. But that's not the kind of rest that God promised. Yes, God provides physically, but that does not mean that you will never suffer want or hardship. Yes, God reveals truth, but we need more than just information or right thinking in order to have peace. Yes, God loves us and cares for us in ways that surpass knowledge, but that doesn't mean that you will live a life that is free from emotional suffering. Let's just be honest. How many of our prayers are towards those things? Those types of rest, physical, emotional, cognitive. Sometimes I think that that's really all we want from Him. And when we don't get it, what do we do? We escape, we grumble or complain, we seek substitutes, we neglect God. Do we turn away from him? Do we just give up and go somewhere else? Try something else on for size, because that'll be better. The problem is not that God is failing to provide rest. The problem is that we are trying to get his definition of rest to match ours. God, I want your rest for me to look like this and only this. But do you know what we're really asking for when we do that? We're asking for relief, not rest. It's what we want. We want it now, not in God's timing. And so what's this rest that Moses and the psalmist and the author of Hebrews speaking of? This is a spiritual rest. According to one theologian, it is the promised position in which one is rightly related to God and partaking of his blessings. Does it say anything about our circumstances or situation? Another defines it in the same way that he does God's kingdom, that it's God's people being with him in his place under his rule and blessing. It says another defines shalom, being complete, sound, in peace, and well-being with God despite your circumstances. And so it's about being in this right relationship with God through the trials of life. But it's even more than that because verses 3 and 4 and 9 and 10, 
We see there that the author connects it to to God's resting on the seventh day, this ceasing from one's own work, a, a striving or a laboring by your own effort to follow your own counsel or create your own way to blessing. And we're going to come back to that, but for right now, it's this ceasing from one's own work. And rest is also, in one sense, treated as a place to be entered, where God is, a place of rest. Adam and Eve lived in this place of rest until they rebelled against God. The promised land was a type of restful place, as was Jerusalem and the temple. But all of them were shadows of the true resting place where God again dwells with His people. And there is rest relationally between us and Him. The new Jerusalem, the new heavens, and the new earth. And so God's rest is God's people who have ceased from their own labors to find shalom, to find rest with God in His place under His rule and blessing. And if that's not already enough to try to wrap your heads around, this spiritual rest of a right relationship with God is already present, but not yet complete. You see in verse 1, the promise of entering that rest still stands. Promise is still out there, right? It's a promise that began on the seventh day of creation, according to verses 3, 4, and 9. It's a promise that the Israelites in the wilderness failed to enter, verses 1 and 2, because God swore that they wouldn't, verses 5 and 6. Joshua didn't give it to the second generation, 40 years later, according to verse 8. And yet, through David, 500 years after the fact, God said that he has appointed a future day for that rest, which is certain, according to verses 7 and 8, a day that has not yet come, though it has been set by God. And that is why there remains, for the original audience of the Hebrews, a thousand years after David, and for us, 2,000 years after that, a Sabbath rest that we are to strive to enter, verses 9 through 11, because that day is not yet here. But here's where it gets trippy. Verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest. Those who have believed, past tense, are currently in that rest. Rest. Verse 10 adds that whoever has entered God's rest, past tense, has also rested, past tense, from his works as God did, past tense, from his. And so, already in that rest, they are already in that rest and participating in that rest that is still yet to be fully re realized just as God is. God's people with him under his rule and blessing already, but not yet. And so if you're in Christ, that is speaking of you this morning, that right now you are in that rest, though it has not been fully consummated. But before we move on, here's why that matters for you and me. In our attempts to redefine and wrongly expect rest from God, whether that be physical or cognitive or emotional rest, we blind ourselves to the rest that He has already given us in Christ. 
And in blinding ourselves to what He has already given us in Christ, we are depriving ourselves of the very means that God gives us to direct, to fill, and to strengthen our wandering and weary souls. Jesus put it this way, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. He didn't say, come to some set of teaching, though he calls us to that as well. He didn't say, just come to church, though we do need a community of faith as we saw last week. It said, it's, it's not come to a professional counselor, though God uses gifted counselors. It's not come to screens or come to food or come to vacation, not come to some new place and attempt to remove hardships. He says, come to me. Jesus offers the ultimate source of true rest in himself, the only source for a right relationship with the person of God. The rest is His rest for His people found by trusting and following His Word regardless of your situation, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your feelings, regardless of how hard things might be right now, regardless of how confused and overwhelmed you might happen to feel. Because He's that rest. He is the only way that you are going to find true rest for, the soul, for your soul that, that you have always been begging for. Not some temporary, physical, cognitive, or emotional relief, but true and present rest, both now and forevermore. Rest to sustain you, even if you find yourself in the wilderness. Even if life at this moment, seems crushing. And your desires for relief are tempting you to fall away from the living God. He says, come to me and find rest. Now that we have a better understanding of who the rest of God really is, we can turn our attention to the first of two commands that are given in this passage. The rest of God, second, is for those who fear unbelief. We fear a great many things. We fear failure, abandonment. We fear man. We fear the unknown. We fear for our security and our safety. We fear sharing the gospel. We fear death. We fear judgment. We fear the devil. Listophobias abound. And many of those can be answered by God's many commands to fear not. Or 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. The perfect love of God manifests in and through us, casts out those kinds of fears. But this passage actually commands us to fear. Verse 1, While the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear. But fear what? Fear God's wrath? It's right there in verse 3. Is that it? No. Is it to fear the Lord? 
Well, when we looked at the book of Proverbs together, we saw that come up many, many times. And the fear of the Lord is to tremble at His power, it's to stand in awe of His greatness, it's to revere His holiness and justice, and to marvel at His glory. To fear the Lord means to wonder at His vastness, to respect Him for His righteousness and wisdom, to be amazed by His grace, to admire Him for His love, to honor Him for His mercy. To fear the Lord is to know God and to love God and to worship God for all that He truly is, not just the parts that I want to accept, but for all that He has revealed Himself to be. The fear of the Lord is to love Him and to live to please Him because you know that you are loved by Him. The fear of the Lord is to spend eternity praising Him for His glorious grace. The fear of the Lord is a worshiping and adoring submission to God. It recognizes who He is and who we truly are in light of Him and lives daily in the acknowledgement of just how much we need Jesus, the very embodiment of God's wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord delights in the fact that we can now pursue God because He has first pursued us through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son. The fear of the Lord is living in light of the fact that salvation is more than a change in status, that we go from condemned to forgiven, but in a redeemed, reconciled relationship between God and all of us whom He has adopted into His family. And that was the long definition of the fear of the Lord that we got from Proverbs. And that certainly fits within what the author of Hebrews is talking about. And though it is there... I don't think that that's primarily what he has in mind. Is it fear of failing uh, failing to enter into his rest? Well, we're getting much closer there. But to find that answer, we need to look at verse 1. Verse 1 begins with a therefore. And whenever you see a therefore, you need to ask, what's it there for? It's an inference, it's a conclusion, it's a command as a direct consequence of chapter 3, verses 12 through 19. This warning against anyone having an evil, unbelieving heart, leading them to fall away from the living God. It's a warning against unbelief. Verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter into that rest because of unbelief. Therefore, While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Why did they fail to enter that rest? Unbelief. Verse 6, disobedience. Verse 7, hardness of heart. Verse 2, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. It's not a fear of losing your salvation. It's not a fear of God's wrath for Uh, of, of hell. It's not a fear of the devil. It's not a fear of living in a world with a bunch of sinners. The command is to fear unbelief. And where does that unbelief come from? It comes from our hearts. Our greatest fear, according to this passage, is not trusting God. Not hearing His voice. Not taking Him at His word. Not believing him as he speaks or follow his voice through the desert. And this warning is not going out to a bunch of God-haters. Saying, listen, all you who, who hate me, you need to fear your unbelief. This is actually given to the church. To those who profess faith in Christ. To those who claim to be the people of God. Now that didn't work for the Israelites. And it won't work for us either. 
This passage says 10 different times in 10 different ways that God has spoken through His Word. Verse 1, God gave the promise of entering His rest, and those who have no fear of unbelief will fail to reach it. Verse 2, the good news came to us just as it had to them. Did you catch that and marvel at that? They received the good news as well. Just like we had, they heard the gospel, not fully, but truly. They got the rendering, we got the masterpiece, but it's still the good news. Verse, again in verse 2, the message of God was given. They heard it, but it did not benefit from it because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Verse 3, as he has said, as God has said, and we who have believed him and taken him at his word enter that rest. Verse 4, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And of course, if God has spoken it in Genesis 2-2, then the Genesis account must be believed. But he has said this much. Verse 5, and again in this passage, verse, uh, Psalm 95, God said, verse 6, and those who formerly received the good news from God failed to enter it because of disobedience. Verse 7, God sang through David so long afterward in the words already quoted. Verse 7 again, today, if you hear his voice. Verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Ten times we are told that God has spoken. Do you believe that? you do not believe the Christian scripture, including the Old Testament, that he quotes from to be God's holy and inerrant word, that's unbelief. If you don't believe that God has spoken in all his word to all of his people throughout all generations, giving it in written form from Adam to the apostle John in Revelation so that all of his people might have the good news that leads to eternal rest, and that these are not just the words of men about God, but God himself has actually spoken. If you don't believe that, it's unbelief. And if you don't believe that God is still speaking through his word, it's unbelief. God is speaking here. And he has commanded us all to fear unbelief. So don't just walk away from it. And again, I'm not, I'm not just saying that to those who haven't been united to Christ by faith, because God is saying this to his church. Don't let disobedience or hardness of heart or unbelief cause you to fail to reach it, to cause it, it to be of no benefit to you. God has spoken. So hear his voice. That purpose of the command, let us fear, is so that none of us should even seem to have failed to reach it. Did you pick up on that word? It's important. That we don't give the impression to anyone that we have failed to reach it. He's saying live by faith, united to Christ and to his people in such a way that you leave no doubt as to the earnestness of your faith and of your trust in Christ. 
This is another way of saying making your calling and election sure. Not that your calling or your election are up to you, but to walk in a manner worthy of God's irrevocable call and unconditional election so that all may see and all may be sure that you have indeed been called and elected by God. Don't give anyone reason to wonder whether or not you have failed to reach God's rest. That's his point. So how do we do that? We do that by fearing unbelief. The rest of God is for those who fear unbelief and who third, strive to enter that rest. In verse 11, we find the second command given in this passage. It says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Because I hope you're not thrown off by that, that paragraph separation right there. Like, wait, Chet, you just jumped into a new stanza. You know, those are not inspired by God. It's all one big block of text. And when you understand the argument, you really see that verse 11 goes with the previous command in verse 1. That word strive means to hurry. It means to do your best, to make every effort, to be eager or zealous to enter that rest. It, this is a call to diligence. And so does this mean that we are to get busy doing a whole bunch of stuff for God? I mean, after all, we're urged eight times to, to enter into that, so we better get to it. Does this mean that, that we must obey God perfectly? Because after all, the Israelites were disobedient. But again, you've got to ask the question, how? How were they disobedient? What did God condemn them for? And that's where we go back to chapter 3, verses 12 through 19. That their main issue was unbelief. And so this command to strive to enter that rest is the positive side to fear unbelief. There's two sides of the same coin right there. But what does it look like for us to strive to enter that rest? Because, I mean... The Israelites were striving to enter rest, right? The problem was they weren't striving to enter God's rest, not in His way or in His timing. They were striving for substitute rests. But they were also striving against God in rebellion, in hardness of heart, in disobedience. They failed to listen to His voice. They put God to the test. Their hearts went astray. They did not know His ways. And so striving to enter the rest of God must look different than theirs. Can't just be striving for some type of rest and saying that that comes from God. Can't be striving upon our own terms and our own ways and our own wisdom. All the while, our hearts are, are moving away from God. Our passage more than describes what the author intends. And if you just walk with me one more time through this text, we'll see what striving to enter that rest actually looks like. Verse 1, diligence to enter that rest is believing the promise of God. It's fearing even to appear as one who has failed to reach it. It's receiving the good news that came to us. It's hearing the gospel message. Striving to enter that rest requires that we be united by faith with those who listened. Verse 3, we must believe what God has said. Verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. Now get that, because that's need for mission, right? 
God wants all of his people to enter into his rest, including those who have not yet heard, who have not yet entered into that rest. And so because God wants that, then all of his people also want all of God's people to enter into that rest, including those who have not yet come to hear and understand and enter into that rest. That's mission. Verse 7 We strive to enter God's rest by hearing His voice today. And verse 10, those who have entered God's rest have also rested from their own works. Did you get that? This striving, this diligence to enter God's rest doesn't come from busying yourself. Not by laboring in your own effort. Not by working harder for God. We strive to enter that rest by resting from our works. This doesn't mean that we don't serve or that we don't sacrifice ourselves for others. It doesn't mean that we don't share the gospel with those who who haven't yet heard it or counsel those who have. But it's letting go of this notion that I can make myself right before God on my own terms. That I can do something that requires He do something for me. Like give me the rest that I want when I want it. But instead it is diligently trusting in the completed work of Christ. It's ceasing to trust ourselves and our hearts and our ways and our wisdom, and our wants. Diligence to trust Him and His. And that's why all of the application that the preacher in Hebrews gives is believe, fear unbelief, receive the good news, hear God's Word, be united by faith with those who have listened to His voice, and rest in Christ. This is not teaching passivity. So if we were to let go and let God. It's calling us to action. To fear unbelief. To be diligent to rest in Jesus. We are to strive to obey Him. But obedience is not the cause of our rest. It is the fruit of our rest. No, striving by ceasing is all about a daily active dependence upon Jesus. As John Piper puts it, the Christian life is a life of day by day, hour by hour, trust in the promises of God to help us and guide us and take care of us and forgive us and bring us into a future of holiness and joy that will satisfy our hearts infinitely more than if we forsake Him and put our trust in ourselves or in the promises of this world. And that day by day, hour by hour, trust in God's promises is not automatic. It is the result of daily diligence, and it's the result of a proper fear. We strive by ceasing from work and by entering that rest through diligent daily faith. This is a faith that does not presume upon God's ever-present grace. This is a faith that lives and feeds 
off of that ever-present grace. This is a faith that earnestly needs that ever-present grace. This is a faith that delights in God's grace even in the desert, even in the midst of physical and cognitive, emotional and spiritual toil in order to find rest in God. We enter that rest by faith in Jesus. We enter that rest by looking to Him. My friends, I, I mentioned this a couple of times before, but if you have not yet picked up one of these booklets in the back, let me encourage you to do so. This is just brief little meditations called Looking Unto Jesus. I, mean, I know the graphics are, are a bit dated, but the content is so, so good. David actually uh, pointed this out, directed me to this, and, and I've been just struck by um, how valuable and rich the content has been. There's just these short little, little statements that say, looking unto Jesus instead of whatever this might be. And just helping us to learn what does it mean day by day, hour by hour, to fix our eyes on Jesus. And you, can, you could go through one of these a day. You could go through one of these a week in your LTG, just kind of unpack that and meditate on it. But it's glorious. It's really, really good content. And I would encourage you to do that. Though it's only 27 pages, it contains dozens of really short and wonderful meditations to help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. I just want to read a couple that were a real encouragement to me this week. It says, Looking unto Jesus to receive from him the task and the cross for each day with the grace which is sufficient to carry the cross and to accomplish the task. The grace that enables us to be patient with his patience, active with his activity, loving with his love, never asking what am I able for, but rather, what is he not able for? And waiting for his strength, which is made perfect in weakness. And here's another. Looking unto Jesus, to go forth from ourselves and to forget ourselves, so that our darkness may flee away before the brightness of his face, so that our joys may be holy and our sorrows restrained, that he may cast us down, that he may raise us up, that he may afflict us, that he may comfort us, that he may despoil us, that he may enrich us, that he may teach us to pray, that he may answer our prayers, that while leaving us in this world, he may separate us from it, our life being hidden with him in God, and our behavior bearing witness to him before men. Striving to enter God's rest and fearing unbelief can be summed up in this, looking unto Jesus, fixing your eyes on Jesus. It's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. May we all fix our eyes on him and find rest for our weary souls because the rest of God is for those who fear unbelief and who strive to enter that rest. Let's pray. Father, I pray that it's only fitting that we, we ask you to give us Jesus. 
that we would come to him and find that rest for our souls. There are many things going on in our lives, many toils and struggles, many things that weary and fatigue us. And so often we confess that we look to find rest in many, many other things besides him. So God, we ask that you would give us Jesus. That we would be able to live in that rest that we have been brought into through faith in him. That as we look to him, we find the grace sufficient for the day. So that our souls may be sustained. No matter what that desert looks like for us. Find hope and gladness and joy in the midst of it all, that we would delight in our Lord and Savior, and to be able to sing with, with open and earnest hearts in praise and worship and adoration of Him. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on Him, and in doing so, to find rest. We need it, and you alone can give. So, Lord, we're asking by faith in his name.